Running for the Prize, the title of my sermon today. You know, um, sermons without illustrations are kind of like houses without windows. Um, You know, it often takes a good illustration to kind of cement or crystallize in our minds the instruction that we've heard, to kind of put it in color, to to make it easy for us to understand. Jesus constantly illustrated the truth um, as he was teaching it, and his apostles seemed to have followed on with that same practice. When we read uh, Paul's epistles, like 1 Corinthians that we're going through, we, we see that Paul illustrates all the time uh, with great frequency. And he has three pictures, you probably notice this already in Corinthians, that he returns to more than any other. Uh, in fact, let me see if you can guess them. What are the three pictures that Paul often uses? Athlete, soldier, farmer. Yep. Those are the three pictures that he uses over and over in his writings. And it's the athletic metaphor uh, that fills the mind of the apostle as he draws application here at the end of chapter 9 to these principles that he's been laying down in the earlier verses that we've been reading together. All the way back to chapter 8 and 9, you'll remember Paul's addressed this issue of Christian freedom or liberty And he has been especially addressing the question of how important it is to restrict our freedoms and restrict our liberties sometimes in order to achieve the bigger, the grand objective that we saw last week, which was that by all means, Paul said, I may win some. He wants to win men and women for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's a discipline that's involved in that, Paul says. He is free to do certain things that he chooses not to do so that he can win people to Christ. And it demands that he exercises discipline so he can live his life accordingly. So now he, at the end of chapter 9, he uses a picture, this athletic picture. It's a picture that's going to be immediately familiar in the minds of his audience to drive home what he has been instructing them in this chapter. There are three points this morning, if you're taking notes, that we'll try to cover between these four verses, 24 to 27. There is an illustration, there is an exhortation, and there is an application. And I'm going to do them a little out of order in the text, uh, but hopefully it'll still make sense to you. All right, so let's start off with the illustration. Number one, a sporting illustration. You'll see that in the first part of verse 24 and then also in verse 25, a sporting illustration. You know, when we began our study in the letter of 1 Corinthians, we learned, uh, you got now you gotta, you got to stretch way back to January of 2022 to remember this stuff, okay? But we learned the city of Corinth was not only a thriving cultural and commercial center because of its location, but it was also... You may remember this, the location for what was called the Isthmian Games. It's not easy to say. Isthmian Games, um, which were second only to the Olympic Games that were held a little further um, in Athens. So for Paul to talk about running and training and winning was making an immediate connection to his readers. I want to talk about each of those ideas here for just a moment as far as his illustration goes. So let's talk about running, first of all. He asks a rhetorical question to start off verse 24. It demands a yes answer, doesn't it? Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? People would have said, well, yes, we know that. 
In fact, in Greece, at the age of seven, children were introduced to the world of athletics, and specifically, gymnastics. They were trained every day. They also took swimming lessons in very, very cold river water. In Sparta, the gymnastic exercises were designed to prepare people for military service. And the girls were also trained in running and spear throwing and wrestling. The Isthmian Games were dedicated to the god of the sea, which they were surrounded by, Poseidon. And the site of the games was a spruce grove that was dedicated to Poseidon. Nobody in Corinth would have been in any doubt when Paul said, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? Nobody would have said, what does Paul mean by that when he says that? One writer wrote, a historian wrote about how consumed the Greek culture was with sports. He said, the masses only deserved two things of the political establishment. Uh, only two things. They demand bread and they demand games. The two things. By, in fact, the historian says, quote, by day they stood about idle. <laughs> in the evening they watched sports. Some things just don't change, do they? <laughs> Running. Training. Training. Secondly, in this illustration, Paul talks not, not just about running a race, but also the preparation that's necessary. Look in verse 25. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. The standard of these contests was extremely high. In fact, the only ones who could enter these games, or the Olympic games even beyond those, were those that could provide evidence of their training. They had to show that they had, they had to prove that they were trained to, to be able to participate in the games. And the training, the specific training for the Isthmian games, was conducted over a period of about 10 months. And they had to, like, show that they checked their boxes off. They had to show that they had practiced in the gymnasium in Corinth every day for those 10 months to be able to participate in the games. So there was a strict training regimen that was in place. And then thirdly, what about winning? The prize is important. You know, the athletes are not in the games just because they like to run. They're, look, they're in it for a prize, aren't they? And now only one prize was presented, the prize that Paul calls a wreath. See it? They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we an imperishable now, what they had was a wreath that you probably have seen pictures of this in ancient uh, his, history books and things like that, but they had a wreath that was often made of laurel. Uh, sometimes it was made of pine, but it was a prize to wear this crown, this wreath was a real prize. It, was, it, was, it meant something significant to them for their gymnastics uh, competition and, and it's something they really wanted to have. It was a status symbol. They were prepared to strain every muscle. They were, they were prepared to transform their lifestyle. They were prepared to give themselves fully to this task so that they could go home wearing pine needles or laurel leaves on their head. They were, they were heading toward, they were focused on a crown that would deteriorate from the day they received it. 
Paul's appreciate, his application here to this is, is clear, isn't it? These athletes are practicing such self-control, such discipline. They train so strictly. They run so hard just to receive a rotting, deteriorating crown of plants. And you can see the application here, can't you? Are we going to do any less for an imperishable crown waiting for us in heaven? That's his point. That's his illustration. I want you to notice, secondly, the application, a self-directed application down in verses 26 and 27. Notice that Paul directs this section toward himself. He says in verse 26, basically, I do not run like this. I do not fight like this. I do this for a reason. And he's going to tell us the reason. Paul, Paul recognizes there's a unique danger to someone in his position. And this danger is expressed in a couple of ways. And these will be uh, kind of the subpoints here under this, under this section. First, the concern he declares. And then we'll also look at the control he displays. So look at the concern he declares, first of all. What is his concern? He states it very clearly. Uh, look all the way at the end of verse 27. His concern is, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now this isn't just humility on Paul's part. He's, it's a real concern to him. There are a couple different views on what Paul is describing when he uses the word disqualified. He may be referring to the loss of reward in heaven. This would line up, for example, what he wrote about back in chapter 3, about the idea of getting into heaven as through fire or by the skin of my teeth, right? Uh, just barely making it. Remember back there in chapter 3, there was a discussion about our works being revealed by fire to be either like wood, hay, and straw, or like gold and silver and precious stones. That's one view. The second view, which is, I think, more persuasive, is that this is a warning passage, not just for Paul, but for all of us, that a person may be self-deceived into thinking that he or she is a Christian, but when it comes to the end, the end of their life, the end of their race, they're shown to come up short. Now, I wanna, I, what I want to say here about this is a couple of things. One, I want to quickly say that there is a, there's a tension here in this passage. I want you to feel it. There's a tension here. There's a tension in many other passages like this in the New Testament. I think God wants us to feel this tension. On the one hand, those who are saved by the grace of God are going to make it to heaven. Okay? I believe with all my heart in eternal security for those who are kept in the hand of Jesus Christ. I don't believe you can lose your salvation. Paul, in fact, said this in the very first chapter of this letter, didn't he? Back in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, he said, Jesus will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's pretty clear, isn't it? He will sustain you to the end. Guiltless. 
There's a lot of promises like that in this passage, in, in the pages of the Bible. And yet the word disqualified here in verse 27 is most often used by Paul to indicate someone who's not in Christ. The term literally means counterfeits, not passing the test, not approved, a fake. Paul uses the same word over in Romans chapter 1, verse 28, in describing a depraved mind. That's the word. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5 through 7, really interesting passage, Paul makes it very clear that Jesus is in the Corinthians unless they fail the test. Same word. Over in 2 Timothy, writing to him, Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.8, he describes a couple of people, Janus and Jambres, as being worthless. Same word. Worthless to the faith. Writing to Titus, he calls the false teachers there in Crete people who are unfit, same word, for any good work. Even the passage that comes after this in chapter 10, Paul warns the Corinthians that they are in eternal danger if they don't deal with the issue of idolatry. So think about this. If you're Paul and you're talking about this race, about finishing it, getting this amazing prize, not like these little reeves that you know, break down and at the games, but this is an eternal prize that we're after. What a tragedy it would be for the recruiter, for the one who's trying to get people into this race, to not be a true runner himself. Wouldn't that be a tragedy? Richard Baxter, a Puritan, writing uh, back in the 1600s to pastors in his day, he rebuked many of them for offering the bread of life to others a bread that they had never tasted themselves. So if the warning here about being disqualified or being shown to be a counterfeit or a fake is real and legitimate, and yet if the assurances of God keeping his own to the end are also real and legitimate, do you feel the tension? So why would Paul say something like this? Why create such tension here? What's the purpose of this warning that he applies to himself, but of course it extends to all of us reading it? What's the purpose of this warning and the others like them in the New Testament? Because, by the way, there's a lot of other warnings like this in the New Testament too. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Paul said in, uh, in a later chapter. Is Paul trying to get us to doubt our salvation? Is he trying to, to get us to, to, to live in fear that we might not belong to God? No. Oh, no, friends. I like the way one author, uh, one commentator explains this tension. L- listen to it and see if it makes sense to you. The warnings in the New Testament are one of the fundamental means used to preserve Christians in their faith. As believers respond to warnings, their assurance is not dampened, but deepened. 
The need to run the race in the end did not fill Paul with doubt or shake his confidence. Instead, the admonition to run the race stimulated him to continue in the faith. And his perseverance in the race bolstered his confidence that he would receive final salvation. Perseverance is the mark of the true believer. Does that make sense? The warnings are there not to cause you to doubt your salvation. The warnings are there to keep you going. To make you work harder. Work out your own salvation. Not to get lazy. Not to get... Uh, caught into sinful habits that that get you off the racetrack. True Christians see the warnings and they continue to run because of them. And because they continue to run, it gives them the confidence and the assurance that they belong on the track. The truth is, brothers and sisters, there are many contemporary Christians all around us who have lost sight of the prize for whatever reason. And they're running aimlessly, if at all. These warnings should spur all of us onward to prove we do indeed belong to Jesus because we are going to run all the way to the finish line and get that prize with God's help. So how are we doing with the running? How are we doing with the training? What's the prospect of your crossing the finish line and getting the prize? If it was all over this morning, what's there waiting for you? That's the question. That's the issue. That's the concern that Paul declares. Now, notice the control that he displays. So he's concerned that he would not be disqualified. He doesn't, Paul doesn't want to be shown at the end to be a counterfeit, to be fake. So as a result of that, he changes the things that he does in his life in order to ensure he gets that price. So he says no to a couple things. Look at them in the text. Look at verse 26. First, he says no to aimless running. No to aimless running. I do not run aimlessly. I don't run around like somebody who has no goal. This goes along with what he said to the Philippians. Do you remember in Philippians 3? Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And he's unashamed about it. Paul's saying, let's make this personal, right? I'm using the I word in these verses, right? I'm headed for the finish line. Well, what do you expect of the finish line, Paul? I expect the gold medal. I expect the imperishable crown. What are you prepared to do in order to make sure that that's how things are going to end up? Paul's saying, I'm prepared to make sure, one of, the, one of the ways, by not running around aimlessly. Paul's on the track. 
He's wearing the uniform. He's got the shoes on. He's got a number on his back. And he is in the race. He's not wandering around the track, going up into the stands to greet people. He's not heading to the concession stands to get a hot dog. He's in his lane. He's got the goal in his sights. He's not going to run aimlessly. Neither should we. Look at something else he says no to. He says no to shadow boxing. I do not box as one beating the air. He introduces another element from the Isthmian Games here. There was actually, in the Isthmian Games, a combination of boxing and wrestling. Maybe kind of a forerunner of what we call today UFC. He's again connecting with the minds of the Corinthians. They know exactly what he's talking about when he says, boxing, beating the air. But Paul is not swinging at the air. He's saying, I don't do this. I'm not boxing at the air. I'm making contact with my punches. Okay? Look what he says. But I discipline my body and keep it under control. Literally. This is what that verse means. I give my body a black eye. Literally. From the original language, I punched myself underneath the eye. That's what he says. It's a graphic statement, isn't it? So does that sound like self-help? Self-esteem? Doesn't, does it? Sounds like something different. Because it is something different. Paul says, I recognize I've got a problem. The biggest thing that's going to prevent me from ever getting the prize is me. Not somebody else. Me. So I'm going to have to take me under control. I'm going to have to beat me up. Doesn't sound quite right, does it? You're probably not going to hear that from a psychologist's couch. But that's exactly what the text says. The verb, I discipline, means to put under strict discipline, to punish, to treat roughly, to torment. The verb, keep under control, means to enslave or to subjugate. That's why many of us here who have ESV Bibles, you have a little note on this verse. Do you see it? It says, I pummel my body and make it a slave. Because that's what these words mean. In fact, some have taken this verse, as sometimes false teachers are prone to do, rip it out of context, and engaged in self-flagellation. You all have heard of the monks, haven't you? That would whip themselves for hour after hour after hour on end. This verse is one of the reasons why they did that. But Paul is not suggesting that we do that at all. So what does Paul mean by this? He's using an athletic metaphor. I don't beat the air. I give myself a black eye. He is training strictly, so strictly, that he does not get kicked out of the race or out of the boxing match at the end. 
He is exercising self-control so that he does not forsake the faith. One example of this. If Paul did not keep his body under control, he might engage in immoral sex. Remember chapter 5? And what did chapter 6 say? The sexually immoral do not inherit the kingdom of God. They don't get the prize. Now, thankfully, Paul goes on, doesn't he, and says, such were some of you, but you've been washed. Praise God for forgiveness. So how in the world are we going to be able to keep ourselves in check? Not by shadow boxing. That might be, you know, us coming to church every Sunday and, you know, looking the part and playing the role, but then not doing anything about it day to day. We don't want to just beat the air, make a show of it. We don't want to run aimlessly. We don't want to get distracted and off the track and off the goal by every little thing that comes along. We do this, we stay on track, we keep ourselves in check by beating on our sinful desires in such a way that it brings them in line with what the Scriptures demand. Paul made this application to himself, as he often did. But now, for our last point, we're going to go back to verse 24. We're going to go to the readers, which of course includes us, for the exhortation. A striking exhortation, in fact. It's the little phrase, it's the little command, the little exhortation. So run that you may obtain it. That's the exhortation. Uh, Philip's translation says this, you ought to run with your minds fixed on winning the prize. Now, there's, there's a little discrepancy that we, we want to we bring up and, and, and resolve here between the illustration that Paul uses and the application that he's making, right? In the illustration he uses, there was a whole bunch of runners in the race, but how many prizes? Only one. So we're not all running, as it were, the Christian life because there's only one prize that's available, right? And whoever gets to the end fastest enough gets eternal life. Okay, that's not how this works, right? There's not just one prize available because a lot of us would just give up on the race because of the statistical improbability that we wouldn't win. Here's how Paul explains it further in his letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 7, and 8. Remember when he said this? I have fought the good fight. Now when he says that, you think about something, you think about that in a different way now, don't you? You probably have always thought, I have fought the good fight as Paul fighting the forces of evil. Now think of it as Paul also fighting himself. Beating himself into submission. Making his body a slave. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Same metaphor. I have kept the faith. And he goes on to say, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, the imperishable wreath which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Well, that's nice, Paul. I'm glad you get it. You know, enjoy that crown. Too bad, too bad we don't get one. I guess you're kind of uh, 
You've got dibs on it. That's not how he finishes the verse, is it? He will award to me on that day and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You finish the race with perseverance, you get the prize. All of you do. God has prepared crowns for those who will run in the way he says we ought to run. Paul's saying, I don't, I don't, I don't run like a straggler. I don't, I don't run like a wanderer. I don't run like some half-hearted participant. You know some of these people, they run these 5Ks and these 10Ks and these marathons. You, Joel, you know. You know some of these people are just running to get the T-shirt. You know. They put, they put, they put the 25 bucks in. They just want the T-shirt. You know, they can wear it around like, hey, look at me. There are some people who, who kind of treat the Christian life that way, friends. Yeah, I was in church on Sunday. Didn't you see me? Got the T-shirt. That's not the way Paul wants to run his race. The Christian perspective is to run to win. To run as though there is only one prize waiting. The word athlete in verse 25 Different translations, if you have different translations, say it differently. But the word athlete in verse 25 means the one who engages in competition. But it's also the word where we get our word agony from. It's the Greek word agonizo. We get our word agony from. The Christian is so committed to being there. The end of the race. Get the prize. Be with Jesus. That everything matters. Everything matters. Because he is consumed with where he's going. That crown is so important to me that I will order all the rest of my life, all the rest of my time, however long I have, in relationship to that objective. We're supposed to run in that way. So run agonizing, sacrificing, beating down our own sinful desires to get the prize. That's how you go to job interviews. That's how you choose a wife. That's how you decide to remain single or not. That's how you set up your career. That's how you respond to disappointment and loss. In light of the fact I'm running to receive the prize. And everything else is relevant to that single goal. And I know it's going to cost me. I'm going to agonize on my journey. I'm going to make sacrifices. It's going to hurt. I'm going to restrict my sinful appetites. How do we do that? Not by just trying really, really, really hard all the time. We'll fail dramatically, won't we? The key is actually found over in Colossians chapter 3. Go ahead and turn over there. Another letter that Paul wrote. He gives us a great summary of it here. Colossians 3, look at verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, if you're a true believer, if you're in the race, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, 
not on things that are on the earth. Paul's saying, get your heart there. Get your mind there. Then verse 5, check out all the garbage. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Why? Well, he goes on, and he goes on to detail in that passage all these different things that are earthly and that we should put to death, and then later the things that we should put on instead. But, but why do we do this? Why do we make such sacrifices? Why do we discipline ourselves so rigidly, so strictly for this race? Because we're now in Jesus. Because out of his great love for us, he has saved us. Jesus came to this earth as the sinless Son of God. He died on a cross for our sins, taking the sins of all of those who would ever believe on him. On that cross, died for those sins. He was buried in the tomb. He rose the third day, proving that God accepted his sacrifice, that God has the power over death, that Jesus can offer eternal life to all who will follow him, to all who will call him Savior, to all who will call him Lord. Jesus doesn't like that stuff that trips you up that gets you sidelined, that hinders you from running the race with all that you've got. He knows it's no good for you. And if you keep up with that earthly stuff all the way through your life, you won't get the price. It's as simple as that. Listen, brothers and sisters. Every day, You live your life. Every day you go to school or you go to college or you go to the office, you have got to actively run the race. Run for the prize in strict and in ruthless control of your own fleshly appetites. Here's a great quote from a book entitled The Christian Life. It says, what then is the killing of sin? Listen to this. It is the constant battle against sin which we fight daily. The refusal to allow the eye to wander. The mind to contemplate. The affections to run after. Anything which will draw us away from Christ. It is the deliberate rejection of any sinful thought, suggestion, desire, aspiration, deed, circumstance, or provocation, at the moment we become conscient of its existence. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in a second letter, we take into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but that takes work. we got to do that on purpose. You can't just slide by your Christian life on Monday morning. You've got to be in it. You've got to have your shoes on and your uniform on, and you've got to be on those blocks and ready to go. If you're going to be successful, 
I'll ask the praise team to return to the front. We'll sing a final song here in just a minute. As they're coming, let's just think about the implications of this message for a moment or two longer. Some of you may have noticed on the front of the bulletin today, I wrote about an Olympic gold medalist, the world record holder in the 400-meter hurdles in Tokyo, uh, U.S. athlete Sydney McLaughlin. Sydney McLaughlin. Uh, I find it inspiring. You probably do too, don't you? To watch athletes do amazing things, especially after great personal sacrifice and discipline. And for me, especially those like Sydney who desire to use her abilities and skills for the glory of God. There was another very famous Olympian named Eric Little who, whose story is recorded in the 1981 movie Chariots of Fire. He was very dedicated to his craft. He was a favorite to compete for the 100-meter run, the 100-meter race in the Summer Games in 1924 in Paris. The Olympics come up, and the heats for the 100-meter race are on a Sunday. And Little had a conviction about training or competing on the Lord's Day. And he withdrew from the race, representing his country. The Prince of Wales even tried to get him to change his mind. He wouldn't. He ran in the 400-meter race instead, a race that he had not trained for, a race that was not his proficiency. Of course, the great story is, He won the race. He got the gold medal. In fact, he broke the world and Olympic records in the process. Writing later, when he was asked how he won the 400 meter, he said, the secret of my success over the 400 meters is that I ran the first 200 as hard as I could. Then for the second 100, with God's help, I ran it harder. The truth is, many of us are through the first 200 meters, at least, of our life, of our race. Maybe we even had a great start and have run pretty well so far. But here we are. There's another 200 to go. Are you prepared to go all out for the finish line in the last 200 of your life? Are you prepared to reorient your life, your career, your future, your desires, your dreams, to give up anything and everything for the cause of winning the prize? Tell the Lord that this morning. Just cry out in your heart to him. I'll be that guy. I'll be that girl. Whatever, wherever you send me, whatever you want me to do, I'm yours. Everybody knows the chariot of fire stuff about Eric Little. A lot of people don't know that in 1925, less than a year after he won, he left Waverley train station in Edinburgh, Scotland, where he was from, bound for China as a missionary. 
Thousands showed up to see him off at the train station. He opened the windows of the train car and spoke to the people who had gathered. This is what he said. Let our motto be this. Christ for the world, for the world needs Christ. Eric Little died in a prisoner of war camp in China 10 years later during World War II. He wasn't seeking his own glory. He was running for the prize. Whether he was on an actual track in the Olympic Games or as an overseas missionary under great persecution. So run, brothers and sisters, that you may obtain it. So run that you may obtain it. And as you're running, don't stop believing that he who began this good work in you will bring you to completion, to the finish line at the day of Jesus Christ. I told you that chapter 10, which we'll get into next week, I think Pastor Trey's got next week's sermon. In chapter 10, where we get into the, the, the dangers of idolatry and the, and the great eternal peril that these Corinthians faced. The warning is there, but so is the assurance. Verse 13 of chapter 10, that verse that we love so much. There's no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful, who will with the temptation make a way of escape, that you'll be able to bear it. Yes, there are warnings. Yes, we should take them seriously. But if you're a true follower of Jesus, he's right there keeping you, guarding you, preserving you all the way to the end. And let your assurance be deep as you run your race. Let's stand together. Let's sing this comforting truth to the Lord.